I grew up in the 60s. I remember all the joy that was, you know, Watergate. I mean, that was fun. Um, Woodstock, that was dirty. Um, the Vietnam protests, um, the civil rights movement. It was an incredibly divided time in America. It really was. There was, you know, the slogan, never trust anyone over 30. Well, that one stunk as a slogan. You know, a few years later, you're, what do you do with that? Um, uh, thank you. You're the, we have one awake, uh, for, for which I'm grateful. You know, it, it, was, it was a divided time, and, and it, it had a huge impact on our nation and on my generation, and um, certainly it's a major part of, of who we are now. But I'm not sure it was any more divided than we are now. Uh, it's different now, but the division in our culture is, is um, devastating in a way that I've never seen before. And, and what particularly saddens me is that I see it so much among Christians. The, the brokenness in our culture has is so infected the church that um, it, it harms our ability to have real fellowship with people that might disagree with us. Um, we, we, we're, we feel passionately about things, and that's good. I, I think we should feel passionately. I really do. I mean, the issues that we're talking about in today, whether they're the ones that are quote-unquote on the right or quote-unquote on the left, those issues that divide us are not insignificant. You know, abortion, if you believe it's the murder of 50 million babies, that's not a small thing. That's a holocaust. Immigration, if, if how you look at how we treat people who are at our border is not a small thing. It's, it's one that we have to take seriously. Race relations, after all these years, there is so much harm and hurt and brokenness in that, that that's not small, is it? it that, that we are still so divided along racial issues. Um, how, how, we, how we fund our government, how we treat the disadvantaged. All of those things are big deals. And because they're big deals, we should feel strongly about them. And, and we should care. But now we not only care, we condemn those who disagree. If someone disagrees with me, we assume they are therefore evil. If, if they don't share my position on this, then they clearly don't, you fill in the blank. And, and we have come to the point where condemning each other has become the hobby of the American public. So we shake our fist and we condemn and we mock. I was watching late night TV the other day. I normally don't, but Julie was out late and so I was unattended and I was, had the channel changer without any interruption and, and I was watching and every one of them was, was attacking and snarky and nasty all in the name of humor. And you think, where have we come to? And, and I, I 
got to tell you, it's, it's, it's among pastors, it's in the church, it's in the body of Christ. I, I go to things where pastors are coming together trying to figure out how we can bring the body of Christ together to do good things in Dallas and, and you run into the race card and the economic card and the political card and, 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 and we, we grind and we grind and you wonder, are we getting anywhere? And one month here, I was called a racist and a liberal by two different people. At least I'm somewhere in the middle, I guess. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it has, inf- the division has infected the body of Christ. And I fear it's neutralizing our testimony. Um, we're going to start a little short series on 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. We're going we're gonna to go through Corinthians in bite-sized pieces. I, I've, I've been, this is my 18th year as, as pastor at Grace, and I've avoided 1 Corinthians like the plague. It, it's a great book of the Bible. It's just, it's just a hard book. It just goes through one issue after another, and the issues aren't small. I mean, for heaven's sakes, there was incest in the Corinthian church. We don't even condone that in East Texas, for crying out loud. I mean, it was... It was it was just, it was a church that every pastor loves because you can compare your church to the church at Corinth and say, well, we're not that bad for heaven's sakes. I mean, they had more problems and Paul normally starts his letters with these great theological descriptions of the beauty of God and, and he just goes straight to problems in 1 Corinthians because that's all he's got. I mean, it is a hard book. So we're going to take it in little pieces because I don't want to get that depressed of staying in it nonstop the whole time. Um, and the first four chapters I've called, it's not about us. It's not about us. So turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter one today, which addresses the issue of division in the Corinthian church. Now, Corinth is an interesting city. It's on an isthmus. I love saying that word, isthmus. Um, but because it's on an isthmus, it, it separated on the west the, the sea-going route to Rome and on the east the sea-going route to Asia Minor or Turkey. So it, it literally had two ports for one city. As such, it was a very significant commercial center. In fact, it said that it was the most competitive commercial market in all of Rome. And because it was a pathway to both parts of the world, it was very cosmopolitan. There were roughly 70, 80,000, 70 to 80,000 people living there. Um, it, was, it was a city known for sexual sin because they had the temple the, to Diana, which was dedicated to the worship, uh, uh, sexual worship. And, and, and one of the great writers of the day said, called, made Corinthian a verb, if you Corinthianized something, it reflected sexual disobedience and wanton behavior. It, 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 was, it was a hard, hard, hard place. And interestingly, Acts chapter 18 describes the apostles Paul's establishing the church by the power of the Spirit in Corinth. And the thing that's shocking is Paul stayed there a year and a half. The Apostle Paul stayed in Corinth a year and a half. A lot of the cities, he started the church in a matter of a few weeks. He was in Corinth a year and a half, and it was still a royal mess when he left. Isn't that interesting? You know, oftentimes we get caught up in the, who the preacher is. 
who's sowing the seed. But Jesus said, it's the receptivity of the soil that makes the difference. Paul, Paul didn't take long to build the Philippian church, and they blossomed into an incredibly healthy church. He spent a year and a half in Corinth, and they still were a mess because the seed wasn't responsive. Um, so he gets word about the Corinthian church, and there's one letter probably before 1 Corinthians we don't have. Then he writes 1 Corinthians. There may be another letter, and then he writes 2 Corinthians, but it's a church that he corresponds with a lot. And he begins with a discussion about the division that has occurred in the church. If you look with me at chapter 1, first, there's a period, as Paul always does, of speaking of God's grace, gratitude for what God has done. Verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, who was in Acts chapter 18, a member of the community at Corinth, and probably Paul's secretary who helped him with the book, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Notice a very typical salutation of one of Paul's epistles, but it's interesting to me that he points out that they are a part of the whole body of Christ, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord. He, he emphasizes the unity of the church universal even in the beginning of the passage. Then there is the period of the passage, the verses on his gratitude. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. A couple of things. Notice he's, this paragraph is a gratitude paragraph, but he's not grateful for anything the Corinthians have done. You know, when he, when he writes the Roman letter, he's thankful for the testimony that the Roman church has throughout the Rome. When he writes the Philippians church, he's thankful for all the good that they've done and the way they've responded. When he writes the Corinthian church, he says, I'm grateful for what God has done for you. And it's a hint on just how messed up this church really is. Another thing I want you to notice is how much God has done for the Corinthian church. Did you catch all of those things? It's amazingly powerful. As messed up a church as he is, he, they are, he says, he has given his grace in Christ Jesus, enriched you in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge. He's confirmed our testimony about Christ among you, and you don't lack any spiritual gift. If I were writing this letter to the book of Corinthians, you know what my temptation would have been to write? I wonder if you really are Christians at all. There, there's, it's kind of cool right now to, there's a heavy-handed gospel that's being taught. It may be no gospel at all because it, it's so much emphasis on obedience that it, 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 you hear it and it also, almost makes you wonder, well, I'm, am I really saved? Because, you know, I'm not, I'm not obedient perfectly, right? Now, I believe in obedience. Let the record show, I am for obedience. 
Uh, John Calvin said it is the uh, essence of what it takes to grow in Christ is obedience. And, and obedience is the way to blessing us a Christian. When we live our lives in conformity to his will, he blesses us. Our life is better. I'm for obedience. But the Corinthian church is not an obedient church, and yet look at how much confidence he has in their salvation. Why is that? Because salvation is in no way a result of obedience. It is solely based on faith in Jesus. And he has seen the reality of them entrusting themselves to Christ. And in spite of how big a mess they are, he says, I am confident my testimony about you has been confirmed. And God has given you everything you need to be obedient. Satan is an accuser. He will whisper in our ears, are you sure that you know Jesus? I mean, look how big a mess you are. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I'm just, that's a rhetorical statement, right? Um, but, but Scripture is very clear. The only means for salvation is to place your faith and hope in what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. And obedience is never, ever part of our salvation. It is an outgrowth of our salvation. And as bad as the Corinthian church is, look what he says. Not once does he doubt it. Not once. Um, He emphasizes how much God's grace has touched their lives. You know why grace is so significant what he's about to talk about is because he's, he's addressing disunity. He's addressing disunity. And we'll see how those connect in a moment. Verse um, 10 through 17, he speaks to the issue of the disunity and their need for unity. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, and another I follow Cephas or Peter, and still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that they were baptized in my name. I like verse 16. Oh, and I also baptized the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't remember I baptized anyone else. Julie, I'll say to Julie, did we go to their wedding? And she'll say, you did their wedding. Huh. <laughs> it's nice to know the Apostle Paul forgot things too. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Uh, Paul writes partially, writes this letter because of the quarrels and division that's among them. And what is the division over? What's the subject? Some of you say, I'm of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Peter, some of Christ. Now, there's no record, there's no hint that there is a theological difference between Paul, Apollos, Peter, 
in Jesus. In other words, there's no hint there was a division of content between them. So what's the division? I'd argue to it's pride. It's my apostle's better than your apostle, right? The guy I align with is superior. I mean, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, so he's got to be pretty good, huh? Huh? And Paul, Apollos was a great arguer, debater, eloquent speaker, and great thinker. Well, he, he's got to be better. He was probably taller. Paul, you know, tradition says Paul was short, bald, and bow-legged, which sounds good to me. But, so maybe Apollos is taller. I don't know. And Peter, well, upon this rock I'll build the church. You can see how Christians would have started aligning themselves with different great leaders and started comparing. But on what basis are they doing that? It's personal pride. So why does he emphasize grace so much in chapter 1? Because everything you have was given to you. On what basis do you have to be proud? See, the, it's, the division is because pride has slept in crept in, not slept in, crept in, that's a Freudian slip, I didn't sleep much last night, pride has crept into their lives and they've begun to compare each other and decided who's superior. And what's his answer to that? Who died for you? Who died for you? Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? Who died for you? What is the solution to, to division in the body of Christ? Is it we all have to agree on everything? I don't believe it is. I do not believe it is. Does it mean we can't care about the differences? I don't believe it is. I think we should care deeply, passionately. But the solution is to realize that what holds us together is bigger than what divides us. And what holds us together is Jesus' death on the cross. The gospel of Jesus is bigger than everything that divides us. When we elevate the things that divide us so big that they overcome the significance of the gospel, in effect what we're saying is these temporal issues, these issues of today are more important than how we'll spend eternity. These relationships with other people are more important than our relationship to the Father. When, when, when the body of Christ, which by definition is a unity, is divided over other things, we have made other things more important than the fact that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave. Period. It's what he says. Did Paul die for you? Did, did, that, did that position save you? Um, I have never seen disunity in the body of Christ the way I see it today. Never. Uh, and, and it's not that we have, we've always had differences of opinion, but, but today those differences threaten the very unity of the body because, because you bring up a subject and suddenly it's not just a disagreement, it's a condemnation. It's not that I think you're wrong, it's I think you're evil because you disagree with me. And, and when we do that, 
we relegate the role of Jesus' death and resurrection in our lives to a very insignificant thing. Paul says, how are you saved? How are you saved? See, I, I, I'm going to argue today that, we, that we, have, we have gotten so comfortable in our salvation that we, we've made it a lesser issue in our lives than the other things that we get all emotional about. And, and so we've lost the ability to be united with other Christians who disagree with us on things. And, and we've relegated the gospel to just one more fact, one more point of discussion. Is Christ divided? I also find it interesting that, that Paul understood the limitations of his role. One, one of the things I hear all the time is uh, uh, pastors are cowards because they don't address every one of these issues. And all of these things, you know, a pastor, every church is supposed to address every hot issue in the society today. I just heard it last night. I was watching, or night before last, I was watching a podcast. And, and you know, the guy, all pastors are cowards because they're not talking about this and they're not doing that. And maybe we are, but, but men and women, if we don't preach the gospel, who will? There are plenty of people around to debate some of these issues, right? They'll be debated. But if the body of Christ doesn't preach the gospel, there is no one else who will preach the gospel. And if the church gets so caught up in those things to the point that it is blown apart over them, or if we get so caught up in those other issues that we neglect the gospel, we have lost the very purpose for us being here. And I got to tell you, depopulating hell is more significant to me than my personal comfort today. This is not an argument over political parties or differences of opinion. This is, this is an argument over, this is an issue over where people spend eternity. And if, if that's not so big that we can't be joined together in the name of Christ, even when we disagree passionately, then I think the Apostle Paul was said, do we really believe the gospel? He, he turns to just how controversial the message of the gospel is in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, part of the reason we, we, we drift away from the gospel is the world doesn't like the gospel. It thinks it's stupid. Sometimes we want to identify with what the world is all upset about so that they'll think more of us. The reality is they're always going to think the gospel is foolish. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Notice that this emphasis on their, their pride and their wisdom, their pride and their, their knowledge of the law. Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
God took this foolish message of the gospel and he turns dead people into living ones. Well, the Jews will demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. But we just preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things. God chose us, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Notice he gets to the point so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God and that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, we get divided because we get proud. We condemn others who disagree with us because we somehow think we're better than they are. We lose the ability to respect others because we get inflated opinion of ourselves. And the body of a Christ, like the world around us, has gotten so caught up in the disputations, which are legitimate. Hear me, they're legitimate. But the gospel is bigger than all of that. Because, because we can talk about all this stuff all day long, but the, the message of Jesus and what the Holy Spirit does in a dead person's heart, it's the only message that changes people from death to life. It's the only message that begins the healing in our broken hearts. It's the only message that restores our relationship with the Almighty God. And if that's not enough to unite us, then I fear it's our pride that's gotten in the way. Let him who boasts, boast in this. Jesus is his Lord. I think... The body of Christ is being tested today. We live in an incredibly broken time with incredibly legitimate issues. And the world, I believe, is watching to see if the message of Jesus is big enough, is powerful enough to show the world what the solution looks like. To be able to discuss differences and disagreements in a way that's not only God-honoring, but human-honoring. To, to learn how to demonstrate God's love in the midst of these tumultuous times. To humble ourselves to the point of sacrificing for others. In spite of the ways we disagree. 
How do you do that? You look at what Jesus did for us. You look at what Jesus did for us. Either we believe it or we don't. Let's pray. Father, forgive us that we sometimes treat your gospel, the message of life through Christ in such a shabby way. Father, forgive us that the unity we have in you is oftentimes not enough to overcome the divisions we have on earth. Father, forgive us that we can take disagreements and turn them into opportunities for boasting of superiority and condemnation of others. Father, forgive us that no one was offended by our sin like you were, and yet you gave the ultimate gift and forgave through the death of your son. Lord, teach us to live that grace. Teach us to forgive. And teach us to, to live your gospel for all that it's worth. In Jesus' name, amen.